Hello, I'm John O'Connor, author of the book Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Now begins Episode 21, The True Watergate Narrative. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. We believe we have solved for you the specific mysteries of Watergate in the approximately 10 hours of our prior podcast. How do these specific truths fit into the overall narrative? And yes, the Post has largely ignored these facts or explained them in its own false narrative. But how could the truth escape so many honest and intelligent observers? By showing you here the overall narrative scheme, you will see how the real story has remained hidden. Let's start with some low-hanging fruit. There is no doubt but that Howard Hunt and James McCord were continuing undercover CIA agents or contractors. It appears that McCord's handler within the agency was the mysterious Lee Pennington, and Hunt's was the very high covert official Thomas Karamesines, with whom Hunt had regular tennis dates and with whom Hunt had worked closely on many covert ops while with the agency. It was the same Karamesines who had told the Miami CIA station chief to, quote, cool it, unquote, when he inquired of headquarters if it was aware of Hunt's highly concerning activities. We do know that with some degree of certainty, contrary to Jeb Magruder's seemingly perjured testimony, former Attorney General and campaign director John Mitchell knew nothing beforehand of the burglary operations. And we also know that John Dean played a strong role, at least in setting up Liddy's and Magruder's operation. We also know that Philip Mackin Bailey had brokered a prostitute referral program within the DNC, which used Spencer Oliver Jr.'s phone in contact with a Columbia Plaza escort service. The service was run by a woman going by the name of Kathy Dieter and was protected by a burly man named Russ. Kathy told Bailey her operation was protected by the CIA, so it certainly appears that Russ worked as muscle for the CIA. So yes, the CIA and hookers were in some fashion involved in the scandal. But we also note that Nixon campaign cash was used. In fact, the original program was proposed by Liddy and presented to Mitchell while still Attorney General on two separate occasions. Why wouldn't this be a White House operation? The answer is, as we've explained, to some degree it was. But Liddy himself, the only non-CIA person involved in the operation, was clearly kept in the dark about its true purposes. After the wiretaps had begun... Liddy made sure on June 15th, right before the second burglary, to put an envelope with summary of the overhearings directly on the desk of Mitchell, now head of the campaign. To be sure, the summary did not reveal that the information came from wiretaps, and it is not clear that Mitchell ever opened the envelope put there during a busy meeting along with other papers on Mitchell's desk. Mitchell, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman the three men highest on the Nixon totem pole and closest to the president were all tried and convicted in the fall of 1974, at least of covering up the burglary's sponsorship, and in Mitchell's case, of also ordering it. Of course, although not indicted, 
Nixon was proven to have committed at least two acts of criminal obstruction, and with Mitchell's conviction for authorizing the burglary, Nixon's cover-ups appeared serious, lending credence to the notion that the burglary was a campaign operation. So with the latter in mind, how can we feel any sympathy for Nixon and his men, or as Woodward and Bernstein would say, all the president's men? The Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize for its Watergate reporting. Not only was this the most highly awarded journalism in world history, but also this reporting was the most closely examined, studied, and written about journalism in world history. How could educated opinion be so grossly wrong about what had happened? And, of course, about what the Post wrote about what happened. How could the Post fool thousands of smart journalists, historians, and researchers over 50 years? The answer starts to become clear when we establish the motives of the key players. It is crystal clear, as we have shown, that Hunt infiltrated the White House to allow the CIA to perform domestic operations, otherwise illegal. McCord went to the CRP because he was to be a key component in that same plan. By virtue of their secret roles, they had every motive to deceive about their covert deceit. Why would anyone involved with the CIA ever tell the truth? The Ellsberg operation, as we have shown, was one that was performed for the CIA's specific purposes, perhaps to find out information provided him by Francis Fitzgerald, perhaps to find compromising sexual information on Ellsberg in the event that such would be needed to silence him. So we know in hindsight that the Ellsberg burglary had specific value to the agency, and that the fruits of the burglary, the records of Ellsberg, were sequestered by the CIA and denied to the White House. So even though the Ellsberg burglary had value to the agency in and of itself, Watergate by itself did not. Indeed, if Hunt and Liddy really wanted the fruits of the Watergate wiretaps, they would have had them recorded. But McCord resorted to tricking Liddy to prevent their taping, and after monitoring the conversations, it was McCord who decided what to put in the summaries for Magruder. So it seemed clear that the motive of the CIA was to provide worthless information to the White House, at which point the operation would cease, but the White House would have gained covert ops authority from the president that they could prove with monies drawn on the CRP accounts. So why would the CIA so ardently want this? Because, as we have shown, it had an ongoing prostitute taping program, as Russell admitted by telling his hilarious stories to some of his colleagues. How extensive, how many sites are unknown? The operation at Columbia Plaza may have been enough to warrant documenting that the White House approved it and thereby arguably making legal the entire program, even if at other sites. Accordingly, as various writers point to White House authorization for the burglary, please remember that as in the Ellsberg burglary, it was part of the CIA's plan to get authorization from some White House official for the CIA operations. White House authority does not disprove this plan. It is part of the proof of it. As we discussed earlier, Charles O. Morgan Jr. was a lawyer hired by the Democrats to represent Maxie Wells, Spencer Oliver Jr., and the Association of Democratic Chairmen in a risky but ultimately highly successful effort to quash any mention of the tapes, explicit conversations between males and females. It was apparent to Morgan that Baldwin was working for the CIA after Morgan heard the Baldwin interview tapes. 
He became so convinced that the CIA was behind these taps that he made a motion in camera before Sirica that the government show that they were not CIA wiretaps. Sirica turned down that motion, and interestingly, Morgan's own work in making sure that references to naughty talk were sealed kept later historians from knowing what he knew about what Baldwin was overhearing. Now, how does the evidence show that this really wasn't a White House political, I underline political, operation as history has always assumed it was? Recall that both Hunt and McCord testified that they thought the Watergate burglary operation to have been legal because of White House approval. And they both made clear that they knew that White House approval would only be a defense if the burglary were for a national security purpose. If this were truly a campaign operation, it wouldn't be for a national security purpose. And of course, no Nixon White House or CRP officials outside of these CIA operatives who knew of the burglary at any time thought that there was a national security purpose. Only the CIA was cognizant of such a purpose. For this reason, the talk of a fetalista campaign contribution target can only be attributed to CIA sources as a cover story. Neither Liddy, nor Magruder, nor Dean has ever mentioned a fetalista target, and the burglary activities were clearly not directed toward fetalista contributions, so the point of the phony fetalista justification for the burglaries points to the CIA. This is a false cover story, but it is a cover story that arguably covers national security, Castro, of course, being one of the country's enemies. It certainly was a better story for the CIA that the national security purpose was fetalistic contributions, because listening to naughty boys and naughty girls does not seem like a national security purpose, and more importantly, it would not be a national security purpose of the White House. In other words, if the White House wanted fetalistic contributions targeted, that could be a national security purpose in that hypothetical situation. If the White House wanted to listen to boys and girls, that wouldn't be. So the beauty of the Fidelista story is its apparent feasibility as a White House national security motive. Now, of course, the CIA did not plan on getting caught in Watergate through the arrest of the burglars. But for motives of later proving a national security defense, if the prostitution operation ever came to light, the CIA could point to its undisputed agency-wide support for the burglars. The CIA went out of its way to show it to have been a national security operation if the operation were discovered in subsequent years. Thus, the professional charts were made for Liddy by the CIA Graphics Division. Liddy and Hunt were issued CIA disguises. They met at CIA safe houses, issued CIA cameras. The Watergate burglary was particularly important because it would legalize other crimes already being committed and ones to be committed in the future. How do we know that there was a motive to commit illegalities regarding prostitute monitoring in the future? This is where Michael Stevens comes in and the bugs that McCord ordered that linked to CIA satellites. Clearly, those bugs were not to be used for the DNC, as to which Hunt and McCord thought that the bugging would soon end in view of the worthless material that was sent over. Clearly, these bugs were to be used, whether in Columbia Plaza operations or others, but without any involvement of the White House. The fact that the White House paid for these bugs would be all that the CIA would need in the future to show White House authorization. 
the CIA's participation in the Watergate burglaries is also shown by operations by that very same burglary team, not known by the White House, which in hindsight clearly were intended only for CIA purposes. These would include the bugging of the Chilean embassy, not an interest of Nixon's Oval Office, and the monitoring of Senators Mansfield, Church, and Fulbright. Again, these operations, especially as to the senators, could have only been for purposes of the CIA, especially since these senators were part of the oversight of the agency and controlled its budget. Why would the Nixon White House care about monitoring these senators? It would not. Bugging of foreign embassies is very much a CIA thing. And not only did the Post through Martin Schramm report this bugging on January 7, 1973, but also reported that Martinez was an active CIA agent keeping a diary. McCord also gives this away by his pretrial request that the government produce evidence of all his recorded phone calls. McCord made sure to make a call after the burglaries to the Chilean embassy, knowing that the wiretaps that he had installed would catch his call to the Chilean embassy. He assumed that the government would be too embarrassed to reveal that the embassy had been tapped and might therefore dismiss the case against him. Interestingly, the government denied the tap. In any case, at the risk of beating a dead horse, I think it's very clear that the CIA had very clear motives for being involved in the Watergate burglaries, and also very clear motives to hide that involvement. What about John Dean? The title of his autobiographical book says it all, Blind Ambition. Dean saw the development of intelligence dossiers on political opponents as a sure way to the top of the Nixon White House hierarchy. Would he be interested in information about politicians cavorting with prostitutes in D.C.? There is a clear answer to this, yes. He had sent Tony Ulasewicz, please recall, to New York in the fall of 1971 to identify Democratic politicians who patronized the happy hooker ring. So that part of Dean's possible motive is clear. Was he also interested in the DNC? That is clear as well. He also sent Ulasewicz to case the DNC around the same time Ulasewicz was examining the Happy Hooker records in the fall of 1971. But would Dean have a way of knowing about the DNC referral operation? We know of two potential conduits to Dean of this information. One, of course, would be Philip Bailey himself. His address books have at least five entries for Maureen Dean, at the time going by the name of Maureen Biner. So we know that Moe and Bailey were acquainted and inferred that Dean was as well, or at least understood what Bailey was up to. Knowing Bailey's propensities, it is not unlikely that he would boast of his role in Kathy Dieter's operation. Of course, Moe knew Kathy quite well, assuming the seemingly solid proof that Kathy was none other than one of Moe's best friends, Heidi Riken. We know from Moe's book that the two kept in touch, with Moe often staying with Heidi when John was out of town. Would Moe know that Heidi had some connection to an escort service? To answer that, we know that Moe knew both Bailey and Heidi, so somewhere in there she likely would have known of Heidi's operation. Len Kolodny in Silent Coup describes a social encounter between Bailey 
and Heidi at Nathan's Bar in Georgetown, in which Heidi was accompanied by a gorgeous blonde who is described as one would describe Mo. We also know that Dean was highly alarmed when he read the June 9, 1972 Star News article on Bailey's indictment, muttering that the demos were likely behind the article. He examined Prosecutor John Rudy's evidence. The evidence included the aforementioned address books of Bailey, referring to Mo. Interestingly, around this time, as Mo wrote, she and John broke up and Mo left town for a while. It may or may not be coincidental that the prosecutors were at that time interviewing girls identified in Bailey's address books. Gordon Liddy, Dean had known, was an unguided missile, but to be both fair and critical, he had a sense of selfless devotion to his country's cause, which he identified with the Nixon White House. Even going to the extremes of offering to Dean to be shot after the burglary. At the same time, he had a very Germanic upbringing by a strict father and worshipped the Teutonic sense of warrior duty, including a fascination with Nazi lore, a perhaps a more favorable view of der Führer than most polite American citizens. So he was a perfect person for Dean to encourage to be the general counsel of the CRP while promising the credulous Liddy a big budget. Dean, it seems, saw the combination of campaign cash and Liddy as bringing him oppo dirt and career advancement. Finally, Magruder was a weakling and not one loyal to his boss Mitchell, with whom he had no history. Likely, Magruder pined to return to Haldeman's team in the White House after the election, and Dean's friendship with Haldeman aide Gordon Strahan likely convinced Magruder that Dean was his return ticket. Magruder was a notorious weakling and non-starter with no initiative. However, as Liddy wrote in Will, after much pestering by Magruder, Liddy agreed he would bring into Washington, D.C. a Miami prostitute that they planned on hiring for the convention so that Magruder could sample the wares. The look on Magruder's face when Liddy finally approved this request told Liddy all he needed to know. Magruder would somehow get approval for the program. Of course, at the time, having nothing to do with the Watergate in Washington, D.C., but rather was one centered in Miami. We would be remiss if we did not mention Maurice Stans in connection with Magruder. A wealthy, highly successful businessman, he joined the campaign in early 1972, lending his acumen to Mitchell's team. Mitchell was a lawyer, not a manager or businessman. So after Stans joined the team and began supervising finances, it became clear that Magruder did not need to ask Mother May I permission for each specific expenditure. If an expenditure was for a category within the budget, Magruder had authority to authorize payment. So let's go back in time. On January 27, 1972 and February 4, 1972, Liddy, flanked by Magruder and Dean, presented his fatuous gemstone plan, appalling the stone-faced Mitchell. After these two meetings, it was clear that Magruder would never get specific permission from Mitchell for any type of wiretapping operation. However, by March 1972, Magruder knew he did not need to tell Mitchell or Stans exactly how he was going to spend campaign security money the category used to draw money for Liddy. Magruder, as a weak but widely bureaucrat, put a vague mention of Liddy's program on the end of the agenda, very ambitious list of matters to be discussed. On March 30, 1973, 
knowing that the three would never get to any detailed discussion of the matter. Bureaucratically, though, Magruder could always say that he had presented the matter to Mitchell and LaRue. So, armed with this very clearly drawn cast of characters, with obvious and provable motives, let's tell you the story which we believe our evidence supports. Let's start, of course, in the fall of 1972 after McCord at CRP and Hunt in the White House had landed in their purchase. As we discussed, Dean then had Tony Ulasiewicz case the Watergate, just as the Bailey referral operation was getting underway. So we know that while Dean may have been eyeing the DNC and its prostitution pipeline over telephone, we know from Liddy's very candid autobiography that he never discussed this matter with Liddy. And for that matter, it is not at all clear that Magruder knew either. But there is solid circumstantial evidence that he discussed this matter with Hunt that fall. What is the evidence? First, Hunt later testified that Dean was one of his principals regarding the Watergate break-in. It makes sense that if Dean was looking at the DNC, he would have discussed this with Hunt. Indeed, if we are correct about Hunt's M.O., we would not be surprised if Hunt planted the first seed in Dean's mine. After all, because the Columbia Plaza operation was being protected by the CIA, Hunt would have known of it. So we would add Hunt as another potential source for Dean's knowledge of this operation. At or around the time of the burglaries, do we know that McCord was highly interested in Democrats hooking up with hookers? In the days before the second burglary, McCord had Baldwin spend a couple of nights in the Watergate Lounge, a bar known as one of D.C.'s most notorious hooker havens. He instructed Baldwin to look and see if he saw any big-shot Democrats hooking up with the ladies. But how would we know that the CIA was interested in Watergate prior to any approval by Mitchell? This one is easy. The rumors about a possible break-in to the DNC for wiretapping purposes were strongly circulated in spook rumors in New York as per A.J. Wollstone-Smith as early as late 1971. Any such discussion in New York would not be through Dean as a conduit who had no connection to that world. So how did these rumors arise? Clearly through CIA channels, since Woolley and his group were all spooks. We note also that this timing is well before Liddy's first presentation of Gemstone in late January 1972, and for that matter, just as Liddy was interviewing with the CRP for his new job. Even Liddy, after formulating his program, was not interested in the DNC except perhaps as a later optional target once the campaign got going. In any case, any connection to this group in New York would have come through Hunt and or McCord, perhaps with a prior buy-off by Dean in conversations with Hunt, we speculate. The CIA's participation is also shown by the delay in hitting the DNC. We refer first to Magruder's troubles and delays getting the supposed okay for his budget which did not incur until March 30. But this delay is not the critical piece. After all, Magruder claims, likely falsely, to have received his go-ahead on March 30, 1972, at the end of the Key Biscayne meeting with Mitchell and LaRue. Yet the order from Magruder to Liddy to break into the Watergate did not occur for another month. So what does explain the delay in giving the go-ahead until the end of April 1972? 
If this really were Mitchell's wish, wouldn't Magruder have rushed from the meeting on March 30 to tell Liddy? Of course he would have. So what caused this delay, and what is the critical piece? This is where the strange tableau of Operation Mudhead comes into play. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate. What really happened? While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.